Before we get started and before we jump into today's message, I wanted to take a moment and remind everybody here in London, everybody in Williamsburg and Somerset about two really important things that I want you to mark down, don't forget, and plan on being a part of in some, some way or the other. Uh, we've got baptisms coming up next weekend. It's Mother's Day, okay? So if you want to give your mama the best gift ever, uh, it would be a great day to get baptized. Uh, we're also launching a brand new series called The Way We Found It. I'm really excited about that, and I, I think it's going to be uh, one of the best that we've ever done personally. So um, I hope that if you haven't decided to make that step yet to be baptized, I hope that you will do so by next weekend. And you can find a campus pastor, you can find somebody in a green t-shirt, or just go out after today's service to Next Steps and let somebody know, hey, I want to be baptized, I need to be baptized, or you can go to thecreekchurch.com and sign up there. But that's a really big deal. Second thing is this, Night of Worship, May 23rd. I think it may just be the best ever. Uh, I think that if you can be here, I think you should be here, and I think you probably should be here early because uh, seats uh, may be at a premium. So make sure you're here for that because I think it's going to be one for the record books. And when everybody talks about it on Monday, you're going to feel oh so bad that you weren't there. So May 23rd, Sunday evening, make sure you plan uh, to be here. All right. If you got that, say I do. Okay. Here's a question. Anybody recognize this guy? No, it's not Dumbledore, uh, it, it's not Gandalf, it's not Kenny Rogers before plastic surgery. Uh, this right here is an interesting guy. His name is Evagrius Ponticus. Uh, he, was, um, he was an influential thinker, theologian. He was a charismatic speaker. He was a prolific writer. Uh, he was a thought shaper in the fourth century, which means he lived in the 300s uh, AD. He, he was born into a Christian family like uh, many of us and some of you. Uh, so he was born into a Christian family and he decided at an early age that he wanted to go into a life of service and he wanted to go into the ministry. So he joined a life of service in the church and he quickly became a bishop and not only a bishop, but a bishop with a a promising future. Uh, so much so that for those of you who love history, under the Emperor Theodosius, when he convened the Second Ecumenical Council in Constantinople uh, to ratify and amend the Nicene Creed that millions of Christians still quote to this very day, uh, Evagrius was there. He, he was in the audience that day. So he was, he was a big player in the church uh, back in the fourth century. Uh, he left Constantinople though, because he decided that uh, he, he didn't want that particular life in the church uh, anymore. So he moved to Jerusalem uh, where he became a monk. And then eventually he would move to Egypt where he would finish out his career uh, by writing volumes upon volumes upon volumes of different things in a desert uh, monastery in Egypt. Now, there's lots of things that he wrote that has been passed down through antiquity, but the thing that he is most known for is that he penned a, a system of categorizing temptations. So when you think about the things that tempt you, the things that you're tempted to do, the things that you're tempted to think, he created a system. He, he created categories uh, of temptation. And, and these categories would lead to most every sin that he could think of. Now, it wasn't a hierarchy of sins that he created or thought of or wrote down uh, because we don't believe in a hierarchy of sin or sinners. But, but this list that he wrote in 375, 375 AD, was a list to help people identify where they're vulnerable or where they're weak or where they're at risk of falling into temptation, falling into sin and devastating their own life. And, and so the eight great temptations that he wrote about in 375, it was gluttony, 
we, we, still, we still struggle. Lust, it's always been around. Greed, sadness, that's interesting. Sadness, uh, acidia, uh, anger, vainglory, pride. Now, just hold on to that for a minute because uh, I, I'm going somewhere with this. A couple of centuries later, after, after you know, our, our monk friend here, after he penned this in the desert in 375, a couple of hundred years later, Pope Gregory I or Gregory the Great, he would revisit this list and he would revise it from eight to seven and he would combine ascetia and sadness and he would combine it into one word and he would call it sloth. Now today in the Catholic church all around the world and in many Western churches, uh, that list that Pope Gregory took from eight down to seven is still known. It's known as the seven deadly sins. How many has heard of the seven deadly sins, okay? We've all heard of the seven deadly sins and, and this is where the list ended up, pride. Greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Now, we're, we're pretty up to speed with all of those. And, and probably if we were pressed on it, we think we're up to speed on all of those. But the one I think that we're probably a bit fuzzy on is this one right here. It's sloth. Now, it's not a word that we use very much, though I think we should bring it back. I, I think it's a great word. You sloth, you. You know, you know, people just, they just struggle with sloth. I mean, have you ever heard somebody get up at, at a testifying meeting and say, Pastor, I, I just, I struggle with sloth. And it's like, struggle with sloth. What, what did they say? You know, it's like, what does that mean? Now, for us modern people, when we hear the word sloth, uh, we think uh, of laziness. Uh, we think of somebody who sees something to pick up, but they just pass on by. We just, we just think of a sloth. It's just laziness. It's, it's do nothing. It's, you know, as country people would say, you're just sorry. You're sorry. You know, sorry for what? No, you're sorry. You're lazy. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. I, 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 you know, you're lazy sloth. I get that. And but early on among the Christian thinkers and the Christian leaders of the church, sloth was not necessarily one of their concerns as it relates to laziness. When church leaders looked out at you know, Christ followers like you and me and like all of us, they didn't look out and say, okay, I'll tell you, one, one of the most devastating things and one of the things that really it's gonna hang up a lot of people is laziness. Though there, there is a problem with laziness in the world and there always has been and there always will be. But laziness was not the great concern. Evagrius himself, you know, the guy who left Constantinople and went to Jerusalem and then to Egypt, sloth was not his greatest concern as it related to laziness. It's not what he had in mind when he made that list of eight great temptations. It's not what Gregory had in mind when he kind of narrowed it down to the seven deadly sins. Evagrius's greatest concern, his greatest concern was for the word that didn't make the list, the word ascetia. And it's perhaps the most destructive sin that you've never heard of. It's something that destroys joy, it destroys purpose, it destroys passion, meaning, it will destroy relationships, it will destroy faith, and worst of all, it will destroy love. Ascetia is something that makes change feel impossible personal change, societal change. It, it makes any kind of change feel impossible. So it causes us to live small lives. It, it causes us to settle for less than what's best. And, and in the end, it leaves us numb. We're, we're just numb. It, it steals our wonder. We have no sense of wonder. We walk outside, we look up into the heavens and there's no wonder. We, we look at people created in the image of God and we look them in the eye and, and we don't have wonder. It silences our gratitude and ultimately, 
in, in the worst kind of way, it makes us selfish. And that's what concerned Evagrius. That's what concerned so many of the early church leaders and they wrote about it. Matter of fact, Evagrius called it the noontime demon because he says it shines into our soul from straight up above and it shines into every crevice and every corner and it leaves not one single solitary shadow of safety that we can find protection from it. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis's Uncle Screwtape. Uh, the noonday demon in Evagrius's mind, he was a seasoned veteran at the dark art that he could move into your life. He could move into my life. He could move into our life and we not even know it. He walked through the front door and we not even see him. That it was almost imperceptible how it works in our life, this ascetia, this noontime demon. And, and so of course, a lot of you are asking, well, what in the world is it? Well, we call it different names today. We call it indifference. We call it apathy. We call it complacency. And the early church leaders, the early church writers, the early church fathers, they wrote a lot about this. And it concerned them that when they looked at the future of Christianity, when they looked at the future of Jesus followers like you and like me, when they looked at the current generation, the thing that they worried about was the fact that Jesus followers would stumble into, or without even knowing it, become indifferent or become apathetic or become complacent. Uh, they saw it as a restlessness, uh, um, an unhealthy restlessness uh, where, you know, it's just like, I, I can't stay, you know, very long in this direction and I can't stay very long and I, I can't stay still. And it's like, I've always got to have something. And it's just an unhealthy restlessness. It's a purposeless excitability. It's not that they're not excited, but what they're excited about just, it's kind of without purpose. It's kind of shallow. It's kind of without meaning. It's a, it's a distracted inattention that causes us to neglect and abandon passion, purpose, and priority. Uh, one writer, uh, and I love the way that she said it, she called it the long, dark vacation of the soul. It's when our souls just numb out and chill out. It's when our soul just checks out and there's no passion, there's no purpose, and there's no lasting eternal priority. Uh, to give you a definition, ascetia is when you stop caring most about what matters most. That's what it is. That's what it looks like in my life, that's what it looks like in your life, and it's what concerns some of the earliest church leaders. It's when we stop caring, I stop caring, you stop caring most. It's not that you don't care, but you stop caring most about what matters most. Because our pushback is, well, I care. I care about you know, lots of important things. But they were concerned about caring most about what was most important. So we've been asking the question, what would Jesus undo? And he would undo that. Jesus would actively undo ascetia, indifference, apathy, complacency in your life, my life the life of the church, little C local church, big C global church. Uh, one day Jesus told a story about three men. He told a story about a wealthy master, a wealthy landowner. And he said, I'm going away on a long trip. And to one of his servants, he gave five bags of silver. And to another, he gave two bags of silver. And to another, he gave one bag of silver. And it says he went off on this long trip. And so Jesus is telling the story. And, you know, Jesus was a masterful storyteller. And when Jesus told a story, everybody was leaning in and wondering where in the world is this going? And everybody was trying to find out who am I in the story? Who is God in this story? You know, who are the characters really a picture of? And Jesus said, this guy leaves and he's off on his trip. And the guy who had five bags of silver, he went out and he worked it. 
He went out and he worked it hard. And, and the guy who had two bags of silver, he went out and did the very same thing. He went out and he worked hard and he, he did his due diligence. And then the one guy who had the one bag of silver, he did nothing. He just did nothing and he buried it. And then the guy came back, the wealthy landowner, and the guy who had five bags had turned it into 10 bags. And the guy who had two bags had turned it into four bags, but the guy who had one bag still had one bag. He had nothing to show for it. And the master looked at him and answered the guy this way. He said, you wicked and you slothful, there it is, slothful servant. You servant of mine with ascetia, indifference, apathy, complacency, you slothful servant. It's your sloth, it's your indifference, it's your apathy that caused you to play it safe. You risked nothing, you invested nothing, and in the end you did nothing. To that guy, it made no difference what he did. And you know what? In the end, he made no difference. He still had what he had in the beginning. And so the master took his one bag and gave it to the guy who had five and made it 10. And Jesus's point was, if you seize your opportunity, if you use what has been given to you, more will be given to you. But if you squander, if you waste what has been given to you, it will be taken from you. The point being, when it makes no difference to you, what you do, what you do will make no difference. When it makes no difference to you, what you do, what you do will make no difference. It made no difference to the third guy in the story. And that's how indifference works. When, it, when we find ourselves thinking, whether you know, passively or actively, whether we state it or not state it, but when it just really kind of doesn't matter to us, well, you know, that just doesn't matter to me. Well, then a lot of your life just isn't gonna matter, especially as it relates to the things that are most important. And none of us wanna live the life that makes no difference. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your personality is. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care. Nobody wants to die and it not matter that they lived. Nobody wants to live a life that didn't make a difference in some meaningful, significant way. But if we are gonna be a people, Jesus followers specifically, if we're gonna be people who make a difference, at some point in your life and some point in my life, we are going to have to learn how to push through and overcome indifference. If you are gonna to wanna to make a difference, some point in your life, you're gonna to have to push past the seasons of indifference because there will be a season when your, fresh is no long, when your faith is no longer fresh, where it becomes stale. It's almost impossible to go through life and just keep faith fresh. There's moments when it kind of grows stale. It's hard to keep your passion up here because sometimes we lose passion and we neglect our purpose. It's kind of the ebb and flow of life. There's times when you get distracted and I get distracted by things of lesser importance and, and we forsake and abandon and neglect the things of greater importance. And it's happened to all of us. We can all give our stories about, hey, once upon a time, my fresh, my, my faith, my, it was so fresh and my faith was so, it was so dynamic. It, it, was, it was there on the front burner. And I felt like I was just so full of passion and purpose and my life was organized around a set of values and priorities and we could all tell stories, but then something changed, something happened and this happened to all of us. But if we want our lives to make a difference, at some point we will have to overcome indifference. Kind of like how that rhymes, right? If you want, our li if you want your life to make a difference at some point, you'll have to overcome indifference. That, that's the fact, that's just the way it is. And if you don't learn to overcome it and push through it, and if I don't learn how to overcome it and push through it, if I live my life with indifference, I will be a life in the end that makes no 
difference. When we live with indifference, we forfeit our purpose. We forfeit our influence. We live those small lives that we don't want to live and we make no difference. We waste the opportunities. Ever how many bags were given to us? We waste it. We sit on it. We bury it. And in the end, because it didn't matter to us, what we did just didn't matter. And this is why Jesus wants to undo indifference because it destroys our ability to make a difference. It, it, it destroys our ability to influence change, to be salt, to be light, to be witnesses uh, of the gospel. All the things that Jesus called us to do, we end up forfeiting all of that. And we end up living empty lives without purpose and without passion for our purpose. And so Jesus says, I wanna undo that. I, I want to dismantle that. I want to destroy that. There's one particular example in the New Testament where Jesus is actively pleading with a group of Christians. He's pleading with the church to move past their season of indifference. They are experiencing indifference and apathy and complacency, and they don't even know it because it's that noonday demon. It slips its way in and we don't even know it. And without us even knowing it, we are indifferent, we are apathetic, we are complacent. And so Jesus is speaking to one particular church and he says, you don't understand the trajectory that you're on. You don't understand how devastating this path that you're on is actually gonna be in the end. And so he pleads with this church and we find him speaking with this church in the very last book of the New Testament, the book of the Revelation. And this is what Jesus says. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, this is, this is Jesus talking to John the apostle and John's gonna write these words of Jesus down and he's gonna send it to this church in Ephesus. Now. So that I can tell you the front side, so that we can land in a real clear place in the end. Ephesus was a very interesting first century city. Uh, it was a storied place. It was, you know, had a rich history. You know, it was visited by some of the greatest characters in all of history. You know, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, they went there shortly before, you know, Mark Antony was defeated by Octavian. Octavian, who ultimately became Caesar Augustus, declared Ephesus to be the capital of Asia. It was known as the light of Asia. And, and they were a very interesting people, these Ephesians. They're kind of like us. They're kind of like mountain people. They're, they're, you know, a little bit independent, a little bit, you know, standoffish, a little bit clannish. Uh, and they wanted to do things their way. They wanted to do things, you know, by themselves. Uh, in the third century BC, Alexander the Great, uh, he offered to help them rebuild, you know, their famous temple. But they said, no, thank you, Alexander. We're going to do it ourselves and we're going to pay for it ourselves. And you know what they did? They rebuilt the temple of Diana. They rebuilt the temple of Artemis and it became one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the third or fourth iteration of that temple and the last was the greatest. It was 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, had 127 marble columns around it that was 60 feet tall. I mean, it was incredible. It was magnificent. It was a temple, but it was also a bank because Ephesus was the center of commerce, it was the center of capital, venture, you know, uh, financial, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, it was like the Wall Street of Asia, so to speak. I mean, it was, it was a really big deal. So it was a bank, it was a temple, you know, it had, you know, a fully staffed set of priests and 
prostitutes and dancers and musicians and bankers and priests and prostitutes, they would all engage in sacrifices and orgies. And coincidentally, the attendance was always high at the temple. I mean, people just, they showed up early, they stayed late, they wanted the front row. I mean, nobody wanted to sit in the back row at the temple of our, I mean, it was just amazing. Everybody wanted a good view. And, and it was like, you know, little surprise, little surprise that Ephesus, you know, becomes the vanity fair of Asia. It's the, one of the wealthiest cities, one of the most influential cities. Mar, it was opulent marble, marble streets, 70 feet wide that went all the way from the port, which was one of the greatest ports in all of the ancient world, all the way through the length of the city. I mean, it was only second in influence to the eternal city itself, Rome. So this is a big place. So you, you take all of that in mind, what a great city this was, this metropolis, this place of influence, this place of culture, it, it shaped fi- fashion, it shaped you know, finances, it, it shaped economies, it, it, it shaped everything. No wonder the apostle Paul wanted to travel to Ephesus. No wonder, you know, we pray, God give us Kentucky, God give us Kentucky, God give us Kentucky. One of Paul's prayers was God give us Ephesus, God give us Ephesus. And Paul, he, he would spend some time in different places planting churches. And he spent about 18 months one time in Corinth. And after he left Corinth, he went to Ephesus and he took a couple Priscilla and Aquila with him. And he stayed there for maybe a year, maybe a little bit less. He left and then he came back a year later and he would stay there for three years. And this is how Acts 19 records this, this church that existed in this place called Ephesus. It says, then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way, because sometimes it's not that people can't believe, but sometimes it's the fact that people won't believe. And there was a group of people in Ephesus that would not believe because the cost of belief was just too high. And it's a little bit of a mirror of the culture that we live in. When a lot of people say, I just don't believe, I just can't believe, you know, I have no you know, interest in church or faith or Christian, you know, Christianity or Jesus or any of that stuff. Sometimes what they're really saying is, I just, I just don't wanna believe because the cost of belief is just too high what I may have to do, what I may have to lay down, what I may have to say goodbye to, it's just too great a price to pay. So it says, Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. And then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And he says, this went on for the next two years so that people, listen to this, so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. This is what you call revival. This is Luke saying, this church is blowing and going. They are turning things upside down. So much so, so much so, there was a riot of over 20,000 people because the Christians in that particular city began to impact the pagan economy of the temple of Artemis. So much so that they wanted Paul dead. And so there were, you know, 20, 25,000 people there at the amphitheater in Ephesus. And you can Google the, you know, the remains of that amphitheater still today. And they were there and they were, they were shouting, you know, praise be to Diana, praise be to Diana. And they wanted Paul, you know, out of town, wanted Christians to knock it off because people weren't buying their little figurines anymore. And people weren't visiting the temple like they used to. And, and it was a real deal. It was revival. Eventually, Paul leaves after three years. He's going to get arrested. And that's when he's going to write a letter in your New Testament called the letter to the Ephesians. One of the great books that Paul wrote. He's going to get out of jail and he's going to go back to Ephesus and he's going to install Timothy as the next pastor. 
So, you know, First and Second Timothy in your New Testament, that Timothy, Paul's protege, would become the pastor at Ephesus for the next few decades, maybe up to the next 30 years. Other New Testament names like Tychicus or Onesiphorus would also become pastors and church leaders there at Ephesus. But maybe most notably was the apostle John. John who was living in Jerusalem, John who wrote, you know, the biography, the gospel of John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and who wrote the Revelation, the final book of the New Testament. John fled Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Romans under the rule of Titus was getting ready to invade the city. And church history tells us that he took Mary with him because you remember when Jesus was on the cross, he looked down at John and said, John, I want you to take care of my mom. So take care of my mom until she doesn't need to be taken care of anymore. Other, in other words, until she dies, you look after her. And so John took Mary and where did they relocate to? They relocated to Ephesus and John, John became the pastor of that great church. So they were pastored by Paul and by Timothy and by John. I mean, this church had an all-star list of pastors and they're a prominent place in the New Testament. The book of Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation was either written to the Ephesians or about the Ephesians. We're talking about a big deal. That's my point. We're talking about a big deal. We're, we're talking about a church that's growing. We're talking about a church that's exploding. We're talking about a group of people that gets it. We're talking about a group of people that wake up with passion down in their gut for purpose. They wanna make a difference. They wanna push back darkness with light. They wanna be salt. They wanna do everything that Jesus has called them to be. They wanna make a difference and they are. So Jesus said, John, I need you to send a message to that church in Ephesus and this is, this is somewhere around 60 years after Paul went there in Acts 19. A little over half a century later, this is what Jesus had to say to them. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, and that's Jesus. In other words, Jesus walks among his churches that Jesus knows what's going on in his churches, that Jesus is the authority over the church. He is the head of the church. The church is not yours. The church is not mine. The church is his. He is the head of the church. He bought it with his own blood. He gets to decide what the priorities of the church are. He gets to decide what the values of the church are. He gets to decide what the purpose and the mission of the church is. And that was Jesus's way of saying, listen, I'm the one who has authority and you are in accountability with me because I'm walking among my churches. So I want you to listen to what I have to say. And so everybody's like listening to Jesus's message to this group of people in Ephesus. And he says, I know your deeds. Well, that's either great news or terrible news. <laughs> How many knows what I'm talking about? I know your deeds. I know the good stuff, I know the bad stuff. I, I, I know the stuff in between. I know what you do, I know what you wanna do, I know what you're thinking about doing, I know what's in your mind, I know what's in your heart, I know your thoughts, I know your attitudes, I just know your deeds, I know your, I, I know it, I know it, I know what you're up to. And that's just a good thing to remember, that God knows and God sees. And that our ultimate accountability is to God because God knows and God sees. And he says, okay, Ephesians, I'm walking among my church. I, I know what's going on. I know the details of my church. I'm not gonna die for the church and then just kind of let it go on cruise control. I know what's going on in my church because I've trusted the church to be the hope of the world. I've trusted the church to be my representatives, my ambassadors 
to be salt and to be light. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. And it's like, you know, I imagine everybody in the church that day went, oh, great. I thought it was going somewhere else. I know your hard work. I know how you like to show up early and stay late. I know that whenever they get up and say something needs to be done, you're there. I know how you're volunteering and how you're engaged. I, I know what you're doing and, and your perseverance. You've not quit. I know you're tired and exhausted and there's never enough volunteers there in Ephesus and, and you just need all of those babies taken care of and you need workers in the children's ministry and the students and adults and boy, I'm telling you, but those of you who are in it, in it to win it, I see you. I feel you. I see your hard work. I know you're persevering. You refuse to give up and give in. And Jesus is saying, hey, I applaud you. What you're doing, and this is good news, what you're doing for me does not go unnoticed by me. The people you go to church with may not notice what you do for me, but I promise you that I always notice and pay attention what you do for me. So if you're holding that camera or sitting at that board pushing buttons or you're taking care of a baby in Kids Creek or you're opening a door or you serve as a small group leader for students or you sing or you play an instrument or you've invited or you got here and just said, whatever I need to do, hey, I'm here, put me to work, whatever it is. Jesus says, what you do for me, I take note of it. And that is good news. He says, you've not given up though you thought about it. And he goes on, he says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. He says, I know that sin bothers you. Sin breaks your heart because you know that sin destroys people. And you know that I died for people. So when you see sin devastating the lives of people, sin, how it kills and it steals and it destroys, when you just can't tolerate that kind of stuff because you see sin working its way through culture and you know that it's never good and, and you, it bothers you. You're not immune to it, it bothers you. You cannot tolerate wicked people. And listen, you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and you have found them false. You people, you don't even think theology is a bad word. You've, you've studied the scripture, you know the truth. And you're able to hear people claim to make statements of truth and you know the truth so well, you're able to spot a lie when you hear one because you're so into truth. And so he celebrates that. He says, you love theology, you love truth, you're hardworking, you're involved, you're working to the point of exhaustion, but you persevere. And then he goes even further and he says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. Because where you live and when you live there, it's not an easy time to be a Christian. Matter of fact, you know, the, the greater culture in Ephesus, they would just rather you not be there. They would just rather you shut up. They would just rather you just go away. But you've persevered through that. Some of you, you lost some business over it. Some of you, you've lost some money over it. You've lost some friends over it. You've, you've lost a little bit of your social calendar because of it, but you, you've endured through all of that. So kudos to you, way to go. I mean, Jesus, he's just, he's encouraging them. And you know, everybody there, they're just thinking, I'm feeling, I'm feeling good about what we've been doing. I'm feeling good about all the stuff because sometimes it feels like we're not making a difference, but Jesus says what we're doing is making a difference. And he says, you've not grown weary. You've not grown weary. 
You've not gotten weary in well-doing. You believe that you're gonna reap if you faint not, so you just keep on sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing. And so he sets them up. And I don't think it's a setup. This is all true. This is not how some of us do it, you know, at the office or, you know, in the corporate world or the business world or, you know, whatever organization you may be a part of, you know, where, you know, we wanna, we wanna criticize someone, we wanna give them some, you know, negative feedback, but in order to say what we really wanna say, we just kind of make up two or three benign good things to say about them in order to get to the one bad thing that we really wanted to say about them. You know, hey, I just wanna tell you, you know, that's, Boy, what a great blue shirt. Can I tell you, you've been sucking lately at your job, you know, or something like that. You know, or can I tell you, you know, well, you keep the cleanest desk. Do you know how far you are by, you know, it's just one of those. He, he's not doing that. He's legitimately saying you're doing lots of good things. But then he gets to this point, and this is the point that he wanted to make. This was what he was concerned about. He said, yet, yet in light of all the good, all the good that you're doing cannot, it cannot allow me to ignore what's wrong. All the things that you're getting right, it's not like it, it diverts my attention away from what's wrong. I know that you keep piling up good upon good and right upon right, but it, it, it doesn't cause me to ignore what's wrong. And this is what we want out of any good doctor, right? We don't wanna to go to the doctor and they tell us everything that's right, but ignore the one thing that's wrong that could be the end of us. Jesus said, let me give you the report. There's lots of good, there's lots of right. But yet I've got this one thing against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. 40 years before, so I'm 43, so about in the span that I've been alive, 40 years before, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians, and, and he, and you can read it for yourself, he applauded them. He told them, he says, you're famous for how you love God and for how you love people. He says, that type of faith is being spoken of all over Asia. That was 40 years before, but over the course of 40 years, somewhere, somehow, that noonday demon, that imperceptible force, that unnoticed reality begin to take hold. Things changed without anybody noticing, without anybody paying attention, and without them even noticing. In the busyness of doing all the good things that they were doing, he says, yet I have this against you, you have drifted, you have forsaken, you have abandoned, you have moved away from the love that you had at first. You don't love like you used to and you don't even know it. This is a church that loved morality. They loved theology. I mean, isn't that the evangelical church of the 20 and 21st century in the West? We love theology, we love rightness, we love goodness, we, we love morality, we love theology. And could it be what was said of the church in Ephesus could quite easily perhaps be said about the 21st century church in this country? Is it possible that it could be said about some of us or many of us or God forbid, most of us? Here's a church of Christians, they were disciplined, they were committed, but yet Jesus warns them. Jesus warns them that, hey, you, you 
have fallen prey to the noonday demon. You have fallen into indifference and apathy and you don't love the way that you used to love. The New Living Translation puts it this way. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other like you did at first. They were doing good things, but they neglected the most important thing. Jesus couldn't have been more clear. And you've heard it over and over again if you've attended here very long at all. But Jesus made the most important thing as clear as crystal. Jesus, what is the most important commandment of all the commandments? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and spirit and to love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you wanna know what all the Old Testament was about, it was about these two things, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus took his disciples into the upper room before he was gonna be crucified. And he said, guys, I just wanna tell you, a new commandment I give to you, a new commandment that you love one another. Jesus, we've heard that before but I want you to love one another the way I have loved you, the way that I'm about to love you. I want you to love each other. I want you to love other people enough that you will sacrifice yourself for them, that you would lay down a part of your life for them, that you'll say no to what you wanna say yes to because of them, that you'll say yes to what you wanna say no to because of them, that you will love each other the way that I have loved you because greater love has no person than this, than one who would lay down their life for their friends, that you would forgive them and be patient and give compassion. He says, that's the most important thing. And Paul would come along in Romans 13 and 1 Corinthians 13, and he would write about it in Galatians, and he would write about it in book after book, and John would come along and write about it in 1 John 4 and 1 John 5. He would come back to it in 2 John and 3 John, and he would say over and over again the message, there's nothing more important than the love that you have for God and the love that you have for those that God created and for those that Jesus died for that there's nothing more important, but somewhere along the way, their devotion became distracted. Somewhere, their devotion got distracted. Maybe they started loving morality a little bit more than they loved God and loved people. Maybe the idea of right became most important to them. Maybe their theology or their system of interpretation, but somewhere along the way, their devotion got distracted by something. They, they, they looked away, they walked away. They no longer was what most important, was it most important? Their motives had become mechanical. They were doing good things. They had lots of, lots of habit, but very little heart. They got into the rhythm, they got into the rut, and so they showed up and they sang and you know, they preached and they prayed and they gave and they fasted and they, they did all the things. They did all the things that they had been doing, but somewhere along the way, it wasn't because of love anymore. Somewhere along the way, it became duty. Somewhere along the way, it became obligation. Somewhere along the way, the blessing became a burden and the delight became duty. All of a sudden they were doing what they'd always done, but they were doing it not because of love. And Jesus said, I've got this against you. This is, this is my complaint. You've become indifferent towards me and towards each other and you don't even realize it. Your faith has become familiar. You've lost your sense of wonder. 
No longer does the idea of grace, unmitigated, unconditional, unrestrained, unlimited grace, no longer does it just take your breath away. No longer does it make your heart kind of skip a beat and it just makes you just say, who am I that God would do something that way? The cross becomes furniture, it becomes a fixture. The resurrection, just a story we tell or something we say we believe. Ephesus, you, you, you're kind of like Israel there at Sinai. You remember when God touched down and there was smoke and lightning and thunder and all of a sudden Israel looks up and says, we never seen anything like this before. This is the best thing ever. This is the greatest. This is awesome. This is incredible. And they fell to their knees and they worshiped. I mean, they were so struck by fear and by awe. And a few days later, their faith grew stale. What was shiny was now dull. What was amazing was common. What was awe-inspiring was just kind of familiar. And so they got bored and indifferent and apathetic and they went over and they built something shiny and new to hold their attention, their unhealthy restlessness their purposeless excitability, their inattentive distraction. And Jesus says, the passion that you once had for me and for people, it's gone. The excitement that you once had for me and for people, it's gone. The concern that you had about, you know, coworkers and friends and family that you're not sure where they stood with the Lord and you're not sure that if they died, if heaven's their home, you're not sure where they stand with all of that. The concern that you had, that deep, bone deep concern, it's gone. That exciting, you know, sense of I need to invite them, I need to bring them, gone. That sense of I get to pray and talk to the God of the universe today, I get to bring my request to the creator of the cosmos and the redeemer of all creation, gone. And it changed without them even noticing. And Jesus' advice to them was consider how far you've fallen. And I imagine they didn't even feel as though they had fallen. They were toeing the line confronting evil, standing for truth. And he says, repent, repent and do the things you did at first. Because if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He counsels them to revisit some memories of a day when their faith was stronger, when their faith was bigger, when their love was deeper. He says, I want you to think about that. And not only does he say that to you, but he says that to me and he says that to us. He says, I want you to think about a time. I want you to think about a place. I want you to think about a chapter in your life when your faith was stronger, your faith was bigger, your love for me was deeper. I want you to remember your faith, you know, that once upon a better time, a time when you were more excited and more passionate and more concerned and you were involved and you loved every minute of it and you couldn't get enough. And it was like, it was an insatiable thirst. It was this hunger that you just couldn't get rid of. 
You remember how you woke up early and you never wrote, read the Bible before, but you just started reading it and all of a sudden you, you just started enjoying it and you bought some books and you started reading it and you were listening to podcasts and sermons, you had music on and boy, it was just, it was just incredible. Do you remember that? He said, do you remember what it was like in those days? You had your sight set on your friends and your family that were far from God and you couldn't stop praying for them and you wouldn't stop inviting them and you, you made up ways to have a conversation with them that circled back to faith. You couldn't wait to get to church. You couldn't wait to give. You couldn't wait to pray. I mean, you just loved it all. You loved worship. You loved singing. You loved the preaching. I mean, you just loved it all. You loved me. You loved it all because you loved me most. The thing he says, I want you to think about right now. And ask, the, ask yourself the question, is it the same way? And to wrestle with the honest answer to the question, what is most important to me, really? What is most important to me, really? What excites me most? What excites me above all else? What inspires me? What, what am I most concerned about? And Jesus said, when you get honest about that, repent, turn back, readjust, realign. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. It's a happy word. It's a word of change. It's a word of you don't have to stop being. You don't have to stay indifferent. You can step out of it. You don't have to remain apathetic. You can move past it. It's a word of hope. It's him saying, come back. It means the story's not over. It means this season is an opportunity to learn and learning is an opportunity for improvement. He says, I want you to overcome your indifference because people who are filled with indifference don't make a difference. And you are my people and you are called to make a difference. But if you're indifferent, you cannot make a difference. I want you to be people of passion and purpose and priority. Those who wake up every day and think, wow, another opportunity. To know you were created with purpose, to know that your life is not empty, to know that your life is not in vain, to know that your life is not an accident, it's not incidental. Your life has innate divine purpose spoken over it and you and I can choose to wake up every day and remind ourselves of that and align our passion with that purpose and attack the day no matter what that day looks like as a person who feels it, a person who's excited about it, a person who takes our five bags and turns it into 10 or our two bags and it turns it into four, but we dare not be the one that took the one and left it that way. The sad end of the story, by the second century, the church in Ephesus was gone. It would come back around later, but the church as it was would never be again. And the point, it's not hard to love Jesus. It's just hard to love Jesus most. And that's what they struggled with. He wasn't talking to people who disliked Jesus or had a, an offense towards Jesus, but he was talking to people who loved Jesus. And Jesus said, you love me. And I know it sounds, but you just don't love me most. And that's what's most important. It's to seek first the kingdom of God. It's to love God and to love people above all other things to not be moved away by lesser things, to not let good things distract you from the best thing or important things distract you from the most important things, to not get so busy standing up for truth and shouting down evil that you, you, 
you move away from me. And this is a tale. This is, this is the story of my life. This is the story probably of your life. I, I agree with the songwriter. My heart, it is prone to wonder. It is prone to wonder. It is prone to distraction. It is prone to step away and walk away, to be lured away. So what has perhaps lured you away? from the most important thing. What's taken you away from the way it was in the beginning with you and your savior? Because he's calling us back. He's calling us back. He's calling us back to the heart of faith. And the heart of faith is love. A love for him and a love for each other. An alignment of our passion and our purpose to be a people who make a difference, who shake off the indifference that we're all prone to because we are a people called to make a difference and we cannot and we will not living in a state of indifference. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Uh, only you, Holy Spirit, can take your words. Your, they're your words. Holy Spirit, only you can take your words and speak it. God, for some of us, we love some things more than we love you. And it's so painful to say it. It's so painful to say it out loud. But we love some things more than we love you. For some of us, we love, we love our image more than we love you. We, we love success more than we love you. We love money more than we love you. We love, we, we love the schedule of busyness more than, more than we love you. We, we, we love our kids more than we love you. We, we love our job more than we love you. We, we, we love ourselves more than we love you. God, would you just speak to us and let us take that on-ramp back to you, to come back the way it was once upon a time when it was all about you. When we were most excited about you, most passionate about you, we walked with a heaviness of purpose because of you. We would meet you early in the morning. We would talk to you in the late night watches. That rush of having our friends sit beside of us that we've been praying for and inviting for months on end. That sense of celebration when we saw them get into the waters and be baptized. That season when we were praying for our kids to get saved, our grandkids to be saved. Our... Just speak to us, Lord, and call us back to you. In Jesus' name.